0: leadership is a lifestyle and you don't determine if you are if you are a leader the people around you determine if you are worthy of that title have you earned the title of leadership from them
1: you're listening to Lead Through Values, where America's Chief Culture Officer, James Mayhew, helps you create a high-performance workplace by building strong leaders, enhancing communication, and accelerating productivity. And now, here's your host, James Mayhew. Welcome back to Lead Through Values. This is James, and I am super pumped today to be able to introduce you to a wonderful gentleman that I had the pleasure of meeting, um, you know, in this virtual world. Sam is uh, Sam is out in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and I'm sitting here in the. Green Flyover State of Iowa. And he and I have never met in person before, but we really struck up a wonderful conversation, getting to know each other and said, hey, let's do a podcast. This is going to be a great fit. So, So I am very excited to be able to introduce to you today, Mr. Sam Thiara. And as the podcast begins to unfold, the first thing you're going to notice is what an amazing, eloquent speaker he is. He really, truly has been blessed with the gift of communication and the ability to to just express himself in such amazing ways. So I asked Sam, this gift of communication, is this something that you've always had or is it something that you've had to work at developing?
0: Heck no. In fact, growing up, I was through high school, university, and many of the formidable years there, I was awkward, shy, and quiet. And actually what happened, and I think the reason what a number of people have said is your voice is very authentic in what you write. And the reason it may seem polished or it may seem, you know, elegant or how it's written is because it's actually very authentic what I'm writing. it's In other words, what I feel is what I write. And because it comes from a very genuine place, it flows much easier and much more consistently as a result. About eight years ago, I was not even a writer. Uh, what happened is <laughs> I through my first TEDx speech that I did on personal storytelling, people said, you should write a book. And then I started writing and then My first blog was when I was turning 50 years old, my wife said, okay, we're going to do a huge party and a blowout and this and that. And I said, great, but I don't want to be there. She's like, what do you mean? I said, no, I want something much more meaningful and purposeful. And I recall thinking from January 1st to December 31st, I want to blog about the extraordinary in the ordinary. So what emerged out of that TEDx speech I did. And from January 1st to January uh, December 31st, I wound up starting to write. And that's where I had 109 blog posts. And then on January 1st, 2013, I listed the 50 most memorable experiences. But, James, that's what ignited my writing capacity. But it's almost like I think it was there. But just the art of that blogging had unlocked what I – what was meant to be because it was more from an authentic place of the people, the situations and things I encountered. So I always say from that standpoint that we all have a capacity to articulate. We all have a capacity to write. But the key thing is I never looked at what the audience wanted. I wrote for me. And when I wrote for myself, the words flowed.
1: In this next section, we discuss the fear of being judged. Uh, the fear of being judged about your style, about your words, your, your entire life story. So it's really fascinating. Hear what Sam has to say about building confidence through your story and how that led him to discover an acronym called CARE. And I'll let Sam explain that, but the four words that come down to CARE are collaboration, adaptability, resilience, and empathy. I think sometimes we have this fear. We have a fear of what
0: people may think or what people may judge me like. I think one of the most important things I wrote in my first book was there's fear in me in writing this book because of what people may think. But the bigger fear is, what if I don't write this book? The bigger fear is, what if I don't do this? And what could happen? What could it lead to? So I think sometimes we should put that smaller fear aside and focus on the possibilities and opportunities, not the challenges and obstacles. And that's something that has always guided me as, uh, as my own compass, I guess you could say, on pursuing things.
1: The biggest fear, in my opinion, how you said mm-hmm. it would be regret. Like, yep. man, I wish I would have done that and now I can't.
0: Well, no, it's so true. And I mean, I think you tapped in on a, a point that I'd like to bring up because one thing I came up with is an acronym that I said, there's a need for us to care. And this is how we're going to move forward. CARE, for anyone who's interested with regards to, let's say the pandemic, stands for collaboration, adaptability, resilience, and empathy. I think those are four words that we can institute for individuals, teams, organizations, educational institutions, and nonprofits. What CARE stands Mm -hmm. for, so collaboration, You have an inventory of experiences and skills. I have an inventory of skills and of, of, of things that I have. How do we collaborate together to make something even better than what we could have done individually? Collaboration, because the world has changed. Adaptability is this idea that don't be afraid to shift to change your perspectives, to pivot, because adaptability is what we've had to do. For me in my teaching, on a moment's notice, they said, you're going online now as opposed to in class. And for me, it wasn't even a a challenge. I basically said, okay, I'm going to face this and I'm going to take it and I'm going to do this and uh, thrived in that space. Resilience is this understanding that this isn't over next week, next month, This is a marathon. Look at it as a marathon and pace yourself throughout and somewhere we will emerge. And we will emerge victorious. And empathy. Let's show care and compassion to the people around us because we don't know what people are going through. Do you want to be the person that pushes someone over that edge? I don't. So let's be more empathetic towards each other. And as a result of that care, I think these are things that we can embrace, collaboration, adaptability, resilience, and empathy that are going to help us move forward.
1: And and Sam, what's interesting about them, those are are learnable. That means they're teachable. They're coachable, right? Do you agree? Oh, totally. I mean, and that's where it
0: goes back to, James, what you had just said about those small fears. I mean, adaptability. I mean, there's always a resistance to change, but when you're forced into it, you suddenly realize it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. So, you know, those can be learned or taught. And the collaboration piece helps us to say, well, you're not in it by yourself. Let's work on it together and figure this out. And let's, instead of, again, looking at the challenges and obstacles, let's focus on the opportunities and the um you know, uh, the way that we could actually emerge from this. The So instead of the challenges and obstacles, the possibilities and opportunities, they're lying there. James, I think for me, it's always been, you know, everything resonates out of how does it apply to me? And, you know, and then I look at it as can this apply to others? And for me, it was like I looked at, you know, the concept of or the idea of, okay, the pandemic's here. How am I going to work my way through this? And I started you know, looking at the things that were important to me, and slowly those words started to emerge. And then I was like, wait, this also applies to a much more broader, larger audience. And all of a sudden, that's how these things emerge. And I, I don't know, for me, it's my life is full of acronyms and analogies and stories, and that's how these things emerge in my life. And then But I also find they become very relatable to individuals, whether I'm teaching a class, doing a workshop or speaking on a podcast. Those ideas become accessible, but also relatable and they're not far reaching. And I appreciate what you had just said, because they can be learned or taught or, you know, can be instituted
1: into our lives. I should let you know that when we originally recorded this episode, this podcast was done in uh, October or early November of 2021, and I've had some delays in being able to get episodes published, and now we're back at it. But four or five months later, it's fascinating to me how profoundly accurate Sam was talking about the hope and the optimism and the positivity that we are going to come through this, and we just need to continue to learn how to apply his care philosophy to that. Now, in this next section, this is a very interesting topic for me. And if you love this podcast because you, you follow leadership, and, and that's what I tend to talk about a lot, is Sam introduces the concept now of leaders and followers. And, and I'll just say at the beginning here that typically we don't want to talk about followers. We don't want to have leaders that create followers. We want leaders that create other leaders, well, Sam kind of takes that concept and turns it over. And we look at what it means to have followership. Well, Sam, one of the things that really piqued my curiosity mm-hmm. uh, when we began to to talk, and it's a question that I think that I deal with in my business from time to time, which is what makes a leader?
0: It's interesting because I get people coming to, you know, I do about three to eight conversations a week with people. And it's not uncommon for someone to come up to me saying, you know, could we have a conversation? And you know, I want to be a leader. I'm like, okay, why'd you come to me? And they're like, well, you're a leader. I said, well, okay. And see, my my life revolves around just asking questions. So when they say, you're a leader, I'm like, oh, okay, what makes me a leader? And you know what, they always use these beautiful words. And I mean, I, I value and appreciate those words that they use, but I always turn back to them. And I said, actually, those are great words, but there's only one thing And only one thing that makes me a leader. And they lean forward because I'm just about to give them this such critical piece of leadership. And it's going to help them become this amazing leader. And when I lean forward and and I, I talk to them, I said, it's actually followers. And they pull back and they, followers? And I said, yeah. Because leadership is not a place to be. Leadership is not a position. Leadership is a lifestyle. And you don't determine if you are if you are a leader. The people around you determine if you are worthy of that title. Have you earned the title of leadership from them? Because they're the ones will, who will really focus on whether you are worthy of that title. So I, I always get try to get people to think about put your ego aside and be the authentic person that you are. And whoever feels that you are worthy of that title will be your follower and will support you in your journey. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, like I said, uh, sometimes on occasions people will go like, oh, okay, so it's followers. Sam, how do I get more followers? I'm like, <laughs> I don't think you really understand this uh, concept and idea. So to me, that's the whole concept of leadership is is this idea that put your ego aside and do what's authentic, do what's right, and the people around you will decide if you're worthy of the title. And to be fair, there are people who will see me as a leader, but fair enough, there are people who will not see me as a leader. And I I have to accept that. So that's how I see this term of leadership. And the other part that I just wanted to layer in is I remember in the past, this idea of leadership is so broad and so extensive. We spend so much time and effort trying to become this leader. And I remember reading Sun Tzu and the Art of War. And it's a great piece because I think there's so much substance into that book of uh, the Art of War. It's a manual for warfare that was written centuries ago by the General Sun Tzu. But now it's a, it's a manual for leadership. And there's so many parallels that you can pull from it. But what I really value and appreciate of his writings is the symbolism of what he talks about isn't unilateral. It's not just one concept. It's up to you to interpret what he says. For example, mm. Sun Tzu said in, in a military standpoint, If you are on the verge of victory and you encircle your enemy, they are going to fight you to the death because they are going to die, but they are going to take as much of your people and resources as they can as they are being consumed. Now, if you graciously provide them an opportunity to exit, they're not going to fight, and you're not going to lose your resources and people, and you may win some allies. Now, that Mm -hmm. works in the boardroom. But the, and sure. that's an, as an example, but the one that really resonated for me, um, when Sun Tzu said, at time of peace, a gentleman keeps a sword by his side. And that reflected my leadership. That sword is my leadership. It reminded me, I don't have to be a leader 24-7. But if an, something emerges where I need to jump in, I need to you know, take more of a responsible role, My sword or leadership will emerge and I'll do what is required. And at the end of it all, my sword or my leadership goes back in the sheath and I can step back. I don't have to be this leader 24-7.
1: So that's an example. The concept of having followers when you're in leadership seems to be one of those words. We don't want to talk about that because the goal as a leader, isn't to create followers. It's to identify, raise up, develop other leaders, correct? And, and yet, you have a different way of bringing these together. And I, I think it just bears, again, just a little bit more unpacking of, around that. So talk to me a little bit ab- about how you see leadership and followership, uh, that relationship.
0: Oh, totally. And again, it's always, we spend 95% of our time talking about leadership And yet maybe 95% of the population are followers. And unfortunately, followership has a (laughs) stigma attached to it that, you know, a follower is never a good place to be because you show weakness. You can't think for yourself. You're just blindly following. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of negative stigma attached to it. There are two thought leaders that I'm just really amazed by that they took this on and it was a juggernaut because everybody had a at, uh, you know would be talking about leadership and here you emerge to talk about this thing called followership. So, uh, <laughs> Kelly talked about followership and Irish Shalaf talked about followership. Kelly basically identified five different types of followers. And you know, yeah, there are the yes people, the ones who, you know, will just you tell me what to do, I will do it and uh, you know, I'm just going to basically be there. So, yeah, there's a number of people that may be the yes people. But the there are those pragmatics who are fence sitters who basically will be, well, I mean, if I think it's a good idea, maybe I'll jump on board, but I'm not sure. You have to convince me. But what Kelly shared are the stars. And the stars are those who are uh, – focused on like they have their own cognitive skills and abilities and yet they fully align with the person in the leadership role but they're willing to challenge the leader and as long as the leader again parks his ego on the side and is willing to listen to the stars that's where the magic happens so it's all about followership is being an amazing follower that can actually support the person and It's interesting because we may not see them, and there may be an argument that, but is the star not maybe a rising leader? Okay, maybe. But again, going back to what I said about Sun Tzu and the art of war and the gentleman keeps a sword by his side, maybe there's a role and responsibility where these these areas may flip where that person who's a star may become a leader and that person may assume a role of followership. It just goes back and forth. And what Iris Shalaf said is similar sort of context is that there are four areas of followership, one of which relates to the stars. But what I liked about what Iris Shalaf had talked about is there's a process and from the process, a leader and a follower and the followers emerge. In other words, you know, depending on what the situation is, and that's the process, the leader and followers encircle it. So if, let's say, you know, you and I are working on a project and uh, the project, and let's say your background is uh, heavier on the finance side, mine is more on the human resources side, but this one is, but let's say there's something that needs to be done that is heavier on the finance side. Well, I'm naturally going to support the work that you're doing because, I know that that's not my expertise, but then the flip side is if there's a process where human resources and the human side of the organization is in place, then you know I'll be assuming more of the responsibility side of this, and you'll support me in what I need to do. So that's where Shalaf talked about the processes is going to determine the role of the the leader and the role of the follower and where they where they will sit. I just think we really need to focus on followership as a complementary piece to a leader and remove that stigma that followers are basically mindless people who just are yes people and things like that, because that's not what a follower is.
1: When you talk about an authentic leader, is that something that you can coach? And what what do you teach people? or coach them through so that they come across as more authentic?
0: Well, the authentic leader is someone who actually has confidence and realization of who they are as an individual, not what they do. So if you spend the time to focus on like, who you are, all of a sudden authenticity emerges because this is who you are. One of the exercises that I I have people work on is what I call the five core elements piece. In other words, what are the five things that you are not willing to compromise in life and career, not just career, but life and career. So for me, the five things that I'm not willing to compromise, servant leadership, story sharing, activator, igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. As a result, this makes me who I am. I am not willing to compromise those five components. And as a result, that helps me to now become authentic to those five critical elements. So when I'm working with people, first and foremost, let's put the leadership thing aside and let's start Mm -hmm. focusing on who you are. And when you come up with these five critical elements, now that becomes more authentic to who you are. It's almost like, Oftentimes, and working in that corporate sector, everybody is wearing the same size suit. I call it a 52 short. So you can see people now. It may fit one or two people in the office, but majority of the people are wearing a 52 short suit. Now I'm a 42 regular, meaning the sleeves are too short, the the trousers are too short, and it's going to be a double breasted on me. But you know, I could do it. I could wear it. I could do the job, but it just doesn't fit. What I'm trying to create is a tailored suit for an individual because by coming up with something that is authentic to you, you can now balance all of this, what you're working on. Does it resonate? Is it really who, who you are? And if it's not, how do we move forward? Now, the way that I come up with those five core elements or help people find the five core elements, it's all about reflection and introspection. So I'll say, tell me about a job you have right now or jobs you've had in the past. What did you like about them? What did you not like about it? But the important part is to ask why. What about when you were in school? What courses did you do that resonated that didn't resonate? Why? And what do you like to do on your spare time? Why? And it's interesting because when we... Start peeling that onion away, and by asking that question of why, things start to emerge. And uh, for example, it's not uncommon for when I ask, "Tell me one thing that you are not willing to compromise," and people will say, "Well, family. Family is really important to me." I'm like, "Okay, why is family important?" And then they go down a pathway and they tell me why family is important. And part of what emerges is they say it's those relationships and the connectedness I have to the people that I'm closest to, like in my family. And then by through that, I would ask them, okay, so does that relationship and connectedness also apply to your fa- uh, to your work environment? And they're like, oh, yeah, for sure. Did it also apply when you were in school? And they're like, oh, f- yeah, absolutely. When you're doing your social thing that you've mentioned to me, does that matter? And they're like, yeah. So I'm like, okay, can we replace family as one of the authentic pieces as relationships and connectedness? And they're like, oh, that makes total sense. And I said, okay, now you have one of your five core elements. Anything you do in life has to embody the relationships and connectedness that are important to you. That's an example of how I I start to extract or pull And start to make that tailored suit for somebody.
1: One thing that you can count on in business is that there is going to be times when there's going to be conflict. Two people are going to be approaching situations differently, thinking about how they would do it and why their way is better. Uh, One of the best ways to have healthy conflict resolution is through open communication and transparency. Now, Sam's going to be talking about a simple but brilliant exercise that he uses in his trainings. Uh, that I just love.
0: I mean, oftentimes when I'm working with organizations, uh, I use an exercise. It's a simple little exercise. And I do this in my class as well. That hopefully really opens the eyes of what people can contribute. And it's a simple exercise and it's on perspectives. Unfortunately, people hold their perspectives as the truth Uh, to them. You know, this is the way things should be done and how things should be done. Well, I put up a picture of the ocean and I ask the audience, whether it's in a workshop, in a class, or doing a team building session, I say one word and only one word, what do you see here? And then we go around and I write on the board all the different words. James, I'll get words like deep, calm, serene, blue, dangerous, uh, traumatic, Waves, sand, mermaid, sushi, pirates, horizon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And at the end of it all, I then turned to everyone, I said, "What do you notice here?" And they said, "They're all different. They're all different words." I said, "Ah, but yes, but which one is the correct one?" And then they look <laughs> at me and they say, "Well, they're all correct." I said, "No, no. as a manager, I have a word." and my word is calm so the one who saw serene deep blue yeah you know what we can work together because you know we're in alignment but you know what the person who sees tr- uh, danger like i'm sorry we can't work because you don't you're not yes. in you're not seeing the way i see things and the person who sees sushi sand salt etc cetera, etc cetera, like i'm sorry like you guys are totally out of this but then i turned to my audience and i said the person who saw mermaids, shark sushi, pirates, etc. Do I need them? And people are like, "Well, yeah." I said, "Well, well, why do I need them? They don't even think the way I do." And they're like, "That's the why. That's the reason why is because you may be a think a particular way, but someone else will contribute value in a different way." And I said, "Exactly. See, I am a very broad conceptual thinker. That person who sees, you know." Sharks, sushi, etc. They're going to see the holes that I don't, but I have to be big enough so that I'm willing to listen to that person and not push my agenda, not push my perspective upon other people. So when you are more open to perspectives and not hold them as your truth that this is exactly the way it is, people are more
1: open and willing to contribute. I look through the world through my lens of strengths yeah. and because of that, it's natural for me. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me. It's effortless for mm-hmm. me. And if you were to be able to pick up my glasses, if you, if you mm-hmm. think of the analogy this way, and you were able to look through that lens, then you would see exactly the same things that I see. Well, we can't really do that. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is when you're operating and you, you tend to see the sharks in the water and the other person sees the mermaids in the water, for example, uh, there's going to be some conflict there. The, one sees danger, one sees beauty or or you know, romance or whatever we're trying to you know to say there. Uh, mystery. Mm-hmm. And then we don't want to work with that person. Mm-hmm. and and to me, that's a form of bias. Right. It, it, it is and, and it's this is unconscious. we We tend to think about bias has to be around something much more obvious than that. the The pace and my priority, um, the way that I see the world mm-hmm. actually really guides us because when you said, which one is right? Well, they're all right. And which one, you know, do we need that that perspective in here? Of course we do. Yes. Well and we see it until we have to actually have to make it happen. Well, and the quick little exercise I do prior to set that one up is I
0: put up a slide with the term and phrase, you make ugly look beautiful. And then I ask the <laughs> class or the workshop or the group, okay, you make ugly look beautiful. Is that a positive statement or is that a negative statement? And it's always interesting because, you know, you might get a 30-70 split, you might get a 50-50 split, etc. But, and then I start going around the room. Okay, you said it was a negative statement. What makes it negative? And they said, well, the word ugly just sort of jumped out at me. Then I turned to someone else and I said, well, you said it was positive. How come it's positive? Well, I mean, it's like you took something that was ugly and made it really nice, and You know, and what I always tell people is the people who saw that as as a negative statement doesn't mean they're a negative person. The person who sees it as a positive statement is not a positive person. What it does is through your lens, as you mentioned, you are pulling it. So some people, when they see the word ugly, it just stops them. It's like saying, James, you're a great person, but, and then you add on to it. So anything after the but erases everything that you just said. So some people see it that way.
1: Whereas Sam, I just got oh, yeah. I got to say something real sure. quick real quick in this is the word that's coming to mind right now is disruptive. Yeah. You're disrupting mm-hmm. thought. Yeah. And that in itself is perceived. A lot of people have a negative connotation, like "oh, we're not supposed to be disruptive." Yeah. And yet, you're flipping that and showing the power of it. I'm sorry, I just oh, no. it, I just had to to like illustrate that real quick because it was so obvious. And that's a cool thing. Please no, continue, no. though. But
0: that's where uh, when when we then decipher it or peel that onion skin away, and we say, you know, it it doesn't mean that it's a negative statement or a positive statement. It's a perspective you hold, and you have your own reasons. I mean. You know, you make ugly look beautiful. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, well, you're still ugly, but you're at the top end of ugly. Or you have taken something that's distasteful and you've made it beautiful. And there's many different ways that you can interpret. And then that leads into the ocean exercise where we go even deeper into the concepts and ideas.
1: As we wind the conversation down here and we kind of reflect on these exercises that Sam is talking about to help people see in a new way. Uh, he closes with how to find the extraordinary in the ordinary. And he does that through illustration with a single jigsaw puzzle piece.
0: When I did my first TEDx speech, it was about discover the extraordinary in the ordinary. In other words, we live in a world that we deem ordinary. Ordinary because of our routine, but embedded in the ordinary are these tremendously extraordinary experiences. And and these extraordinary experiences, we may think they need to be epic, but they don't. It's the small things that really become extraordinary. So what I did was uh, years ago, I started doing this. I gave single pieces of, of a jigsaw puzzle at an event that I was at. And people took it. And they just, you know, put it on the table and I hadn't said anything, but I just gave everybody a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And then I got up and I said, you know, you'll notice that somewhere by you or, you know, by your beer glass or your wherever, there's a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And people sort of picked it up and they looked at it. I said, what can I do or what can you do with one single piece of a jigsaw puzzle once you walk away from here? And they were looking at me a bit confused and they were like, Well, not much, because it's one piece. I said, This is what you feel like. You feel and you are that single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, but you don't know where you fit in and you don't know what the bigger picture is. Well, I'm going to make whatever that is, ordinary, into extraordinary. And then I pulled out a satchel of all these puzzle pieces. And I told the audience, if I give you a single piece of my jigsaw puzzle, do you realize my puzzle will be permanently incomplete without you? Do you realize how important you are to me? Because without you, I cannot finish this. And all of a sudden, I physically saw a transformation on all these faces. And these puzzle pieces that were sort of on the table suddenly went into wallets and purses. To date, I've given about 5,000 pieces to remind people how important (laughs) they are. And I've heard back from people saying, it's taped to my mirror. It reminds me someone told me how important I am. It's traveled in backpacks around the world. It's in curio boxes. It's in wallets. And when I see people at events, they pull out the puzzle piece and they show me. It's one of those simple reminders to say we are all connected. We are all part of someone's puzzle. And your part is important because without it, there's not like, if you work on a jigsaw puzzle, there's not like one overwhelmingly important piece. They're all important pieces because without it, you can't finish it. So that's a reminder about this whole aspect of connectedness is the fact that, you know, you may sometimes feel like that single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, but you are extraordinary and you are part of something bigger and you
1: are part of other people's
0: puzzles. That's simple. It's really,
1: really great. Well, Sam, as, uh, as customary here, I would love for you, I, I know you're the author of two books. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about your books, where mm-hmm. people can get them. And if somebody wants to to connect with you further, sure. what's the best way to do that?
0: Sure. So the first book that I wrote emerged out of my first TEDx speech and it was, uh, discover that extraordinary in the ordinary, and how can you build stories? So the book is about personal storytelling, and it's providing the tools and the processes that you can actually build your stories. So that's where the book is personal storytelling. discover the extraordinary in the ordinary. The second book I wrote emerged out of that first book. It was about a journey I took to India to find my ancestral roots with just a faded photograph and very little information. But it was also about seeking and finding my own identity as a British-born Canadian with parents from Fiji Islands, which is near Australia, and grandfathers from India. And this understanding of, well, who am I? And, you know, making up that foundation. So the book is a, it's, it's a beautiful journey to a far-off place where, because I had never been to India, to realize it. So the book is called Lost and Found, Seeking the Past, and Finding Myself. Both books are available on Amazon, or people can actually go to my website, uh, www.sam-thiara.com, and uh, the books are there. But also, you know, about 180 blog posts that people can read about these types of ideas and thoughts that I've just shared. Uh, Easiest way to connect is LinkedIn, and just say that, uh, hey, I heard your uh, on a podcast with Coach James.
1: And, uh, you know, I'd like to connect and I'm happy to connect as a result. This has been a real treat for me, Sam. I I am so grateful. And and this is a little bit of, again, a shout out to LinkedIn, which I have met the most amazing people. Some of the people that I've met have been in my backyard mm-hmm. and then some have been <laughs> across the country or or outside of the United States, obviously. Uh, it's just been a real treat to get to know you. So thank you very much for your time today and Mm -hmm. the amazing insights. And I I walked away with learning new things today myself. Um, So I'm I'm sure that that's going to have some value. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, thank you so much for joining. Uh,
0: James, thank you. And uh, what I just like to leave your listeners with is uh, it's a signature tagline that I live by. Everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. You're a living story. You have so much to share Uh, don't be afraid to share your stories because people like me were willing to listen and, you know, show your brilliance, live your story.